This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. Okay, hey, welcome back to our fifth episode on parasites. Wow. Again, at Docere Digest, we're here to help break down the parasitical health concepts so you have an understanding of what's going on maybe in your body or somebody else that you know that you love. We really hope that you're receiving a lot of good information and maybe even some terrifying information about the world of parasites. We're sure it's probably helped a lot of you have a much deeper understanding of just how prevalent parasites are in our world. On this episode, we're going to discuss discuss some of the most common parasitical infections that we happen to see in our clinic. Today, I'm going to be talking about cryptosporidium and blastocystis parasites. So what is crypto or cryptosporidium or cryptosporidiosis? Is that correct? Diosis? Yeah. It's a diarrheal, diarrheal, well, how can you say that really slow and fast? <laughs> diarrheal disease caused by a microscopic par- parasite, which we know to be a protozoa. It basically lives in the intestines of humans and animals and is passed in the stool of an infected person or an animal. Both the disease and the parasite are also known as crypto. The parasite is protected by an outer shell that allows it to survive outside the body for long periods of time and makes it very resistant to chlorine-based disinfectants. During the past two decades, crypto has become recognized as one of the most common causes of waterborne diseases that we get either playing or or being in recreational water activities and or drinking water in humans in the United States. So this is something that's prevalent, prominent, and we're finding it in every region of the United States, let alone throughout the world. So if you drink water and play in water, maybe there's something to pay attention to. So what are some of the symptoms of crypto? The most common symptom is a watery diarrhea. The other symptoms include stomach or cramps, stomach cramps or pain, dehydration, nausea, vomiting, fever, and even weight loss. While the small intestines of the site most commonly affected in an immunocompromised person, crypto infections could possibly affect other areas of the digestive tract or even the lungs. Remember, we talked about these are things that can be in uh, not only uh, molecules of water, but as they get aspirated or misted up, we inhale them, especially if you're around lake activities. It's easy to inhale them, and they'll get caught in your lungs as well. So how long after an infection do symptoms appear? Well, most symptoms of crypto generally begin within 2 to 10 days, about the average is around 7 days, after becoming infected with the parasite. So a common question uh, clients or patients ask us is, how long will it last? And what we find in people with healthy immune systems, the symptoms usually only last about one or two weeks. 
However, the symptoms may go in cycles, which may seem to get better for a few days and then feel worse for a few days before or if the illness ever ends. So in people with a weakened immune system, the symptoms may last for much longer times. And what that means is that crypto can be a serious and long-lasting and even sometimes fatal uh, infection. Yet some people seem to have no or very few symptoms at all, and yet they still carry the infection, which now means that crypto parasites are living in your intestine but are not causing you any illness. And so we have to wonder if you even have a resistance to it. Then as a carrier of crypto, you can infect other people. Remember what we talked about in previous issues about the flatulence issue and the tainted toothbrushes that we've mentioned before. So the risk of developing a severe case of crypto will usually depend upon the degree of immune suppression that the human body has. And oh, by the way, even a mask will not prevent you from getting it. If it's there, you're getting it. As we talked about in the home occupant issue, those in the home, if one's got it, in theory, without a doubt, within time, everyone will get it. So the next parasite I want to talk to talk about is the blasto or blastocystis. Once again, it is also a microscopic protozoal, single-celled parasite that inhibits the gut or the gastrointestinal tract of both humans and animals. There are many different types of blastocystis that exist, and humans can acquire infection from one of nine different species or species groups of blastocystis, which are carried by certain things called cattle, pigs, rodents, chickens, pheasants, monkeys, dogs, amphibians, reptiles, fish, and even cockroaches. Wow, and they leave their footprint everywhere, don't they? <clears throat> Since there are so many different types of reactions to blastocystis, this parasite is very controversial, and most researchers don't fully understand the role that it plays, if any, in causing any disease. However, blastocystis has been found to be a possible risk factor for developing leaky gut syndrome, or what we call intestinal permeability, or IBS or IBD, which is irritable bowel syndrome, or irritable bowel dysfunction, and even the causation of some autoimmune issues. So in some people, blastocystosis is an acute illness, meaning the symptoms will last for a short time, as we said earlier, generally within several weeks. In other people, the disease may become very chronic and symptoms will last indefinitely. This is like a low-grade inflammation issue that can lead to hormone suppression and then potentially autoimmune reactions. So a few most common reported symptoms of blastocystis are blasto abdominal pain, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, excessive gas. There's that issue. That's how it spreads. Fatigue, uh, itching, uh, usually anal itching, usually around either the new moon or full moon time, loss of appetite, nausea, the watery loose stools, and even weight loss. Some of the less commonly reported symptoms include skin rash, arthritic symptoms, and joint pain, which is an autoimmune condition, and then intestinal inflammation. A lot of time, blastocyst organisms simply live in a person's digestive tract without causing harm. And I jokingly tell people that means your feeler button's broken because you just aren't feeling what it's doing to you. It's transmitted through food or water or by contact with human or animal feces or flatulence, as we talked about. So who gets blastocystis? Well, I think Dr. Frank brought that up in one of our previous uh, episodes. Those in the military, they're exposed, they travel around, they have all these different issues, as well as those who travel uh, a lot or those who are exposed to those who travel a lot. So maybe you're not the one going to China, Mexico, or Asia, or wherever, but you come home 
and then you pass that on to somebody else, or you live with someone who's been in the military, done these things, and it's there. In the United States, the biggest issue is consumption of untreated water. Now, we can think of pools, streams, ponds, but rarely do people think of well water. And it, yes, can pass through some of the issues of the cleansing effect of well water. It's also contaminated food, daycare facilities, people who work with animals. And the prevalence over time is that more people are becoming infected and they're even spreading even more. And right now it's considered to be that about 25 to 30% of people, or at least one in four, are infected in the world. Wow. Now we know there'd be more than that, but that's at least what it is. So how does it happen? It happens by a barrier disruption, invasive infections, a weakened immune system. But what's unique about the blasto is that it creates what is called a protease secretion. And what that means is it secretes an enzyme that breaks up our antigen antibodies and it is then secreted into the GI tract and now we can't even kill it. There's another thing that it does is it offers other secretory mechanisms and some studies have shown that they produce similar symptoms that are found in other organisms that secrete a severe neurological active chemical such as serotonin. And we've talked a lot about that, haven't we? As well as a substance called substance P, right? So there's a lot more that we have to worry about, but those are the ones I'm talking about. And next, Dr. Luke, he's going to talk about a fishing thing. I think it's called a hookworm. Yes. <laughs> Dr. Luke. Yeah, that's one fish you don't want to go fishing for. Um, so, yeah, we're going to talk about hookworm. The two different types of hookworm are Ancelostoma duodenal and the Nicator americanus. And these two are probably one of, if not the most common ones that, that we tend to see in our practice. Um, in fact, it's, again, one of the most common roundworms in humans. And it is classified as a soil-transmitted helminth or soil-transmitted worm. And it's a type of parasite that penetrates the skin, typically the feet, uh, by walking around outside barefoot and crawls throughout the body. And what we tend to see is it kind of crawls up through the body, hangs out in the throat for a little bit, and then works its way down the esophagus into the into the GI. Um, and because it works its way up to that point, as Dr. Kyson hit on pretty in-depth with regards to the thyroid, it does tend to wreak some uh, havoc around the thyroid and the, the hormonal function of the thyroid gland. Um, so yeah, Nicator americanus, as I mentioned earlier, this name literally translates translates to the American murderer because of the amount of damage it can cause to the body. So once again, be be careful walking around outside barefoot. Okay. The larvae penetrate the uninfected skin and travel to different organs as well, not just up through that route I described earlier, but they can include the lungs and the lymph and begin entering the blood, uh, blood cardiovascular system and again, the intestines. And one of the other symptoms I, I see with this is it can cause uh, excessive, co excessive coughing and shortness of breath. And this is typically due to what's called eosinophilic bronchitis, which again, eosinophils is uh, a type of indice we see on the complete blood count. And it tends to be elevated in some kind of histamine or allergic response. And in the traditional medical sense, they're going to say, well, that's due to some kind of allergy or food sensitivity, which begs the question, well, what caused that? So, and also if you read a standard lab interpretation textbook, parasite infections are listed on that as far as what can cause ele elevated eosinophils. So, uh, because of that ele elevated allergy response, this can cause skin changes like hives, eczema, 
And it once again causes intestinal infections with GI symptoms. It can also cause iron deficiency anemia because of how it latches on to the gut wall and causes a small bleed and then migrates within the GI and moves to another spot and repeats the process. So looking at an iron deficient anemia marker on, uh, a, if you're looking at lab work for uh, potential parasite patients, it's important to catch that as well. And important not to continue to supplement with iron so as to perpetuate this cycle. Uh, moving on, I'd already kind of talked about the pulmonary symptoms. Um, in really severe cases with hookworm, we see pneumonitis, which is lung inflammation due to the larvae migrating through the lungs, which causes small hemorrhaging or bleeding within the alveoli or the air sac space within the lungs. And really severe cases of hookworm uh, infection can also lead to heart failure uh, and also can cause, a, I mean, there's so much overlap with regards to symptoms. So please see past episodes with regards to, <laughs> to symptoms and with regards to um, the statistics that I had mentioned in the first episode. Um, next up is uh, Dr. Caleb's going to be going over T. Gondi. All right. Thank you, Dr. Luke. <clears throat> so T. Gondi is another one of those that is considered by the CDC as one of the top five neglected parasitic infections of the U.S. It is believed to infect 800,000 people per year worldwide. And uh, CDC also says that 40 million in the U.S. are estimated to be effective or infected. Now, we believe that's probably actually significantly higher than that. Um, <clears throat> worldwide, uh, Dr. Luke had mentioned previously that it's estimated that there's 25 to 30 percent of the world's population is infected. I've actually seen other um, studies where they estimate up to 50 percent or half of the world's population is infected by it. And it would definitely make it one of the more successful parasites and prolific parasites that we have out there. <clears throat> so what is uh, T. gondii? It's another protozoan or in this case, actually a sporozone, which is a spore forming protozoan. <clears throat> Now, sporozoans have a unique cell structure called an ap apical complex that secretes enzymes that allow them to actually enter the host. And as we talked about before, they can enter and commandeer and, you know, basically take control. And <clears throat> they can even cause a mass, you know, cell necrosis or cell death, especially in the uh, distal parts of the intestines. Um, transmission processes, there are several different ways. Um, zoonotic, or meaning animal to human, is one big way. I'm actually going to touch on that a little bit more in a moment. Uh, first, I want to go through some other processes. Again, foodborne, undercooked contaminated meat, such as pork, lamb, venison, oysters, clams, and mussels. Um, this one was actually surprising to me. Unpasteurized goat's milk can actually carry Tigande as well. So be careful if you go to the farmer's market and get unpasteurized milks. Um, another way uh, can be congenital. Uh, this is a very serious one. Um, a woman that is newly infected during or just before pregnancy can pass the infection to her unborn child. And this can lead to neurological defects and possibly even miscarriage. Um, some rare instances, again, uh, blood transfusions, organ transplants, um, accidental inoculation, and lab workers who handle infected blood. 
Okay, so let's go back to the zoonotic transmission or animal to human transmission. So <clears throat> the definitive host for a T. gondii is cats. So that means that the T. gondii wants to get inside cats because that's where it can reproduce sexually and create new generations and new variations or adaptations in the, um, in the T. gondii that uh, progresses from there. Um, intermediate hosts are any, well, many types of warm-blooded animals and humans, but uh, some key intermediate hosts are rodents such as rats and mice that serve as prey for cats. And I think we kind of highlighted a little bit before that <clears throat> T. gondii can actually direct or um, kind of rewire how the mouse or the rodent will react, especially in regards to the smell of cat urine. Normally, they'll smell cat urine and they'll get be afraid, they'll run away, and they'll be safe, right? Well, with Tigandai, it'll actually flip that and instead of being afraid, they'll actually get excited and run towards it, making them easy prey for the cats that like to eat them so especially if you have outdoor cats and they like to bring a lot of surprises or fresh uh, you know catches to your doorstep they might not be as skilled hunters as you think they are there are a lot of other things we can go into but i know uh dr kyson is going to be talking about t gondi in one of his case studies and especially how they can go anywhere in the body and how they can affect very seriously in certain places like the brain um, so I'm going to just kind of stop right there and hand it over to uh, Kyson. Yeah. All right. All right, I want to talk about Chagas today, our tri Trypanosoma cruzi, and we've covered a lot of this heavily in other episodes, so I'm not going to try to spend too much time rehashing what we've gone over before, but I found an interesting uh, piece of information on the uh, website for the PAHO, which is the Pan American Health Organization. It's an offshoot of the WHO, World Health Organization. And one of the things that I thought was interesting that they said about this are American trypano, trypanosomiasis is a parasitic disease that affects primarily vulnerable people and perpetuates a cycle of poverty by reducing people's ability to learn, be productive, and their ability to earn a living. So when we look at where this is found in Central America, even down to South America and even Southern United States, we're starting to see more of this in Florida and down to Arizona, New Mexico. We're starting to see some of this show up a little bit more in some of the other Southern states up through Texas. Uh, a lot of the people are bringing this across the border with them. But you look at it and you look at these areas where the economy kind of struggles there a little bit and the people aren't quite coming out of that. Is this a major factor that is holding people back? and keeping them from being able to do what they need to do. And again, we talked about a little bit earlier how this is spread by a uh, the kissing bug, as they call it. This thing bites you, and then it feeds on you, defecates on your skin. You rub on it, and then you rub your eye, your mouth, or something. You spread it that way. But this is one of the top underserved diseases in the world because there's really no good treatment for it. Now, if you get it right away and you can test it, they have great treatment for it if it's in an acute stage. Once it's become chronic, it's there's not a lot they can do for it. So I'll talk about uh, in the next episode, one of my patients who've had it and several other patients that we've worked with on it, we've been able to get some pretty good results with it, doing very non-conventional uh, approaches with what we do. But the disease itself is in 21 countries, it affects 6 million people, and there's another 70 million more that are at risk. 
And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a major thing out there. Over 12,000 deaths are attributed to it annually, which I don't think that includes all the other deaths that it's causing, like the heart disease and everything else, where I read an article where I was saying one of the number one causes of heart disease in South America is the Chagas. And I'm going, it gets in the heart muscle and it starts tearing up and the heart breaks down. And I'm like, this is a major issue. And so there's not really a good treatment for it. So this is something that's a very big one we're seeing a lot more of. Uh, a lot of people who vacation in the Caribbean and the tropics and are, do missions work, they're exposed to it. Usually, if you're on the resorts and you're in a little more well-to-do area, you're probably not going to be as exposed to it. Usually, the people that are most inclined to get are the people who are living in adobe huts. They have straw roofs. They're very low income. They're, they're struggling to survive, and they're stuck in that phase because these things like to live in the mud and the mortar there, and they come out and bite you at night. And so this is a very common through these areas down there. So unless you're in doing missions or you're doing some social work or something down there where you're in these areas, you're probably not going to be as exposed to it. But it does kind of uh, give us an indication of why this is so indicative and why these people are stuck in this ability not to be able to get out of this phase. I mean, we've seen other countries like China and all these other places, their just economies are blowing up. People that we would have usually associated with same type of situations. But here in the Americas, there's a lot of issues down there they're still dealing with in Mexico and some of these other areas. And this disease is really crippling not just the economy, not just their education, but their lives in general. And they're stuck in the cycle because they can't get out of it. So this is this is a major one that really has an effect. Now we see it in the blood where it can cause different issues around there in the muscles, especially heart muscles we know is an issue, but other muscles of the body, it can create some issues. When it gets in the brain, it's a whole different organism there. And I, I have had some patients that we dealt with this. One was one gal who we've got her in and out of a wheelchair several times. Uh, she also had a lot of other things going on with Lyme disease, mold issues, different things like this that we've had to clean up. And she had multiple different types of um, Lyme as well. So the combination of these things together is – when you're treating these things, it's a completely different thing versus like, here, you have a bacteria. Let me give you an antibiotic. We have seasonal cycles with parasites. We have all kinds of other stressors and things that come into it, toxic loads. I mean, so it's really interesting to see how much and how she would completely forget who she was, change her personality, and everything would be an issue because it was located up here next to her limbic system where the infection was with it. And so it's it's amazing how these things, when they get into your neurology, depending on where they land, depends on what we actually find or what the symptoms are or how they present. I've had people that we've worked with, T. Gondi and some of these other different things where we've cleaned up these infections. And it's like they completely changed who they were. Their personalities were completely different. It was like, you know, people like them again. <laughs> they were fun to be around. They were much more relaxed. So some of these things are, are really tough to get through, but Chagas is one that is a, it's a major issue and we're seeing more and more of it in our clinic. And so it's uh, becoming more and more of an issue as we see a lot of people with chronic illness come in. So something we definitely look at, something we definitely look for and something we're getting success with in treating. Once again, it's those who have the weakened immune system. And we talked about all the hormone stress indicators, all those other factors, neurotransmitters, those who are already in a weakened state become more susceptible. And they have less resistance, and so the parasite, the infection, the mycotoxins, they just travel a lot faster and a lot further. Yep. All right. My turn. Your turn. You're up. Dr. C. <laughs> and I get the tanias. There you go. 
And you know what tania means, right? You know what the term means? It actually means flat ribbon-like substance. So I'm going to see if I can't take this tie parasite and tie it up into a nice little bow to end this conversation. <laughs> so I'm going to just quickly review some of the things. We've talked about most of this already. Um, tania causes taniasis, or however that's pronounced. I love how they add an iasis at the end, and that's... It just okay. means it's inflammatory state. Exactly, up. exactly. So the term taniasis refers typically to an, uh, an intestinal infection with tapeworms. And there are three species that typically cause this in humans. It's the tania solium, the tania uh, saginata, and the tania asiatica. Now, according to where I was, it, it was interesting because I was doing a little research and looking this up. It showed a picture that is, and this kind of goes back to that myth and misconception. It showed either like Asia, India, somewhere in there, there's pigs and and cattle and a woman all around this like little stream. And, you know, she's bent down getting stuff. And so, you know, there's feces in there and all this type of stuff. And we think, well, that's, that's the mode how, of how we get it or we've consumed meat. But, you know, referring back to our last topic about how 80% of it is inhaled. So we in America, we think we're safe. We don't, we're not in those pictures. And that's not where a majority of it comes from. So uh, again, one of the, the modes of being exposed is undercooked meat, uh, beef and pork, which the, the Tania saginata is referring to a beef tapeworm. The Tania solium is referring to a pork tapeworm. And then there's another one I, I've seen a couple of times in our office, the Tania pisiformis, which is the um, rabbit tapeworm, which has gotten interesting too. So the big one I want to re reference back to is typically the Tania solium, which creates those, all of these can create those cysts that can get into organs. And, you know, when it gets into the neurology, we really get that major problem that some of the statistics Tania solium is the cause of 30% of epilepsy cases in many endemic areas where people uh, and roaming pigs live in close proximity. In high-risk communities, it can be associated with as much as 70% of epilepsy cases. And more than 80% of the world's 50 million people who are, who are affected by ep epilepsy live in these lower and lower middle-income countries. So it's interesting to see what it can do. And as we've talked about, too, is these... It isn't like it used to be they were they were uh, you had kind of these borders of where they existed. You know, you had your tropical parasites and you have your Asiatic parasites and you have it's like there were boundaries and, and, and they're just spreading everywhere. And so what used to be third world country issues is now becoming a worldwide issue. And like has been mentioned to a pandemic. So um, <laughs> it's a long, lengthy subject, pun intended there. So typically when it comes to the Tanias, most of the time you're seeing it, we're talking about a tapeworm within the gut, which, as we talked about, can be anywhere from inches up to feet long. Um, but it, it's also, don't forget that these can also create those cysts that can get into organs and neurology and create significant damage as well. So, and this is where we talked about too, similar to Chagas, you can get these um, alterate these uh, mental alterations and changes in personality that's from something you've breathed in. So it's, as we've talked about a lot, there's so much overlap, so much similarities. There's, and this is where it can get difficult is you have so many different types of parasites that can create the same type of symptomology, which kind of ties back into what we talk about so many times is we don't care what you have. We care why you have it and we want to fix that for you. So 
Gentlemen, any other thoughts on parasites? Scary. Yeah. So, yeah, as we've referenced before, what, what we really want to reference the most, and as I close this, next time we're going to talk about the victories over parasites. Like so many things, the biggest thing we want to do with these um, podcasts is to give you guys hope. There is hope no matter what you're dealing with. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.